you'll open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. We're going to continue reading, beginning in verse 19 to verse 27. Daniel chapter 4, verse 19 to 27. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged, it is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached the sky in your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that your spirit would use your word to deal with our souls. May we glory in you alone. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. As I've looked at these passages over weeks and weeks, I've noticed that the outworking of some of these outlines in some ways has been very simplistic and has not always delved into all of the depths and minutia of every single vision, dream, and so on. 
And that has been purposeful and with good reason. The scripture here is showing us a very biblically minded way to interpret the scripture itself and to give an understanding that sometimes there is way more read into and taken out of some of these dreams, visions, and prophecies than God ever intended. And that we need to stick by where the Scripture interprets itself. There can be phrases that we deal with in some of these visions and dreams. The idea of verse 14 that the angelic watcher says to chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. The idea of leaving the stump, verse 15, with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it. And then Daniel repeating this and telling us exactly what it means. There will be a kingdom, but it will not be the same. To take too much out of that goes far beyond the truth of the scripture. We must be careful to notice there's just imagery given to us here. That there's a tree chopped down, and that tree is the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. But once it's chopped down, it will never be the same. And the idea of a band of iron bronze around it in the new grass of the field is just simply saying that tree will not grow back as it did. Some of you may have grown up and heard of the idea of girdling a tree. How many of you ever heard that, girdle a tree? Yeah. Not, it's not common use anymore. Um, I, I can remember uh, my grandmother uh, wanting a tree girdled, and uh, when I heard that, I was kind of like, she wants to put strange clothes on a tree? <laughs> when you girdle a tree, you actually try to render it uh, to where it stops growing, and ultimately you kill it to where it will never grow back again. You can do that with a branch of a tree, or you can do that with the whole tree itself. There's various methods to it. All the scripture here is doing is giving us an imagery that there may be the stump of this kingdom left, but it will never be like it once was. As Scott alluded in his comments to the fact that we're seeing the end of this kingdom. We're seeing the end, really, of Nebuchadnezzar. Sadly, in the last 150 to 175 years, passages like these have become places where people begin to branch out into all types of charts and schemes and seven dispensations, and they start at this moment to begin to work out all the ideas 
of not only what happened in the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, but what's going to happen in the kingdoms to come. That's not really the point of Daniel's work here. He's not talking about the rise of the Nazis or anything of the such. He's speaking plainly about Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And that's all he's speaking about. To take it much further than that is to really go outside the bounds of the actual interpretation that the scripture gives us. Now as we move along, is there some sense of what may be future? Yes, because that was given to us in the context of the first dream and the rise of Rome. And Rome at this point is not yet to come. But the mentioning of Rome is to show us the rise of the King Christ. Even the very coming of the one true king has already happened. And it came in the period of Rome. And he was born of a virgin Mary. And he lived on this earth perfectly, righteously, in all his ways. And he died on that cross. And when he died, he died for the purpose of of redeeming a people for himself for all time, space, and history. And he did, upon his resurrection and upon his ascension, usher in his kingdom, and he is reigning, reigning now. Yet for many in the modern evangelical church, that's not enough to say. And it's sad because it puts us in a place of confusion that much of the church today doesn't really understand what the end times are about. And sadly, most of that starts with the interpretations of these dreams, these visions. I want you to see the plainness of these things this morning. It may be simplistic, It may not be what you thought it should be, but I want you to see the plainness of these things this morning. And if for some reason I didn't delve into something that you thought needed more in-depth conversation, then I'll be glad to speak to you at a different time. Not to say there couldn't be some other things said than what I'll say. There could be probably plenty. But I hope you'll see the plainness of these things this morning, even if it's simplistic. Firstly, this morning, Nebuchadnezzar is a man without trust in God. Nebuchadnezzar is a man without trust in God. Although we see in the verse three verses this recognition of the Most High God and what he's done for me and how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders, even the admission that his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. These are merely references to the Most High God. If you notice in these previous chapters, who has uh, 
Nebuchadnezzar really been trusting in. He's been trusting in the servant of the Most High God, Daniel. But he's not actually been trusting in the Most High God. Even here, it's pretty abundantly clear that he recognizes that he's in need of Daniel's help to interpret the dream that he's had, and he's trusting in the servant of the Most High in Daniel, but he's not actually trusting in the God of all the cosmos. It's not a a full-orbed understanding and real, genuine faith, trust in God. It's as Aliot said last week. He's got the knowledge. He's got some mental assent. But there's not real faith. And you can see this, that he doesn't trust alone in the Most High, when you look at even a phrase from verse 8. But finally Daniel came in before me. Now, recognize here in verse 4, you're seeing that this is the speech of Nebuchadnezzar. This is his recollection. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease. Verse 8, But finally Daniel came in before me, Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, Whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. Nebuchadnezzar has a God and he calls him my God. And he's not the God of Daniel. He's still separating those two gods and he's still calling upon the one God as his God. It's a personal proclamation. It's a personal naming. And it's a personal calling and saying, this is my God. He's given reference to the Most High. And strangely enough, he gives some of the highest reference he could give. But he's not calling him my God. Well, not only is he a man without trust in God because he just simply references the Most High God, he only names his God. He claims this personal attachment to his gods. He claims personal assent to his gods. If you think about it for a moment, Nebuchadnezzar at this point is not any different from the problem that the Israelites have had all the way along and why they've ended up in captivity to begin with. The Israelites left their God. And they were idol worshipers. And they would not give up the high places, as is said over and over again in the Kings and the Chronicles. They would not give up the high places to the Ashtoreth. They would not give it up. Sometimes a king would come in and push things aside, a lot of things, but they would leave a lot there for people to worship the other gods of the Gentiles, the pagans. And here we see for Nebuchadnezzar, it's not any different. He still has his own gods. He has a personal assent to them and he has a personal attachment to them. 
not only is he a man without trust in God, but secondly, Nebuchadnezzar is a man without understanding of God. Nebuchadnezzar is a man without understanding of God. You think sometimes when you read certain places in Scripture that people would get a clue? And, and we're, we can point the finger at certain individuals and say, why didn't they just get it? But we have to recognize we're often like that too. Nebuchadnezzar's had another dream, and he can't interpret it. He doesn't know what it means. And instead of just calling upon the Most High God himself and recognizing that the only way he's understood these previous visions and dreams or, or these you know, previous understandings is because God sent his servant to tell them what they meant. He's still been trying to figure out everything on his own. And the dream just has him perplexed. And he can't understand the meaning of the dream. And without understanding the meaning of the dream, it means that he's not understanding the purpose of God and who God is and what God plans to do. Not only could he not understand the meaning of the dream, but he could not understand the scheming of his depravity. Ultimately, the point of all this, and when you get to the, toward the end of chapter 4, is you see in verse 27, Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you, is what Daniel says, breaking away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Nebuchadnezzar has had a scheming depravity like every man worked out in his life and his soul, and he's yet to understand his own sin. This is why he's not understanding God because he's not willing to bow before God not just in recognizing him as the most high of the cosmos but bowing before him and saying before you, O God, I am unholy. Think about the difference and how Nebuchadnezzar has seen and witnessed these dreams and visions and how somebody like Isaiah witnessed his What does Isaiah say? I am undone. Nebuchadnezzar is still saying how high and mighty he is. It's as Matthew Henry said, If impressions be not speedily improved, it is a thousand to one, but in a little time they will be quite lost and forgotten. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, not going forward, soon went backwards. Our sin and depravity never leads us to a continual growth forward. Our sin and depravity is always moving us backwards. Nebuchadnezzar is not bowing the knee to God and saying, I am undone. Holy, holy, holy are you. 
He's recognizing him for his signs and wonders, but not recognizing him for his perfection and holiness. And at this point, if we're to make some kind of juxtaposition between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, don't you see the recognition that Daniel is viewed as a man who's after God's own heart continually? He sees God as holy and he would not defy him. Daniel's friends see God as holy, even such that if they were put between uh, choosing uh, Nebuchadnezzar's statue and bowing before it, or not bowing and pleasing God, their reverence to the one true God is not simply that he's bigger than the statue. Their reverence to the one true God is that He alone is holy, good, and right. We really see the downfall of man that ought to help us to understand how awfully sad and terrible depravity really is. This is a man who's been given actual visions, dreams, signs. and He saw three men go into a fire and come out of it alive. A fire burning seven times hotter that it consumed the men who were told to go throw the three friends in. He witnessed that sign and that wonder. He bows before God for the signs and wonders, but he's not calling him my God. The reason Daniel and his friends would not bow is because those gods and even Nebuchadnezzar was not their God. They believed in the one true God And he was and is their God. I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you get up in your day and do you recognize God, the one true living God, as your God? He is God not only over you, but he is the covenant God. who has chosen to redeem you? Is he your God? Or is he just a God? Thirdly, Nebuchadnezzar is a man without humility before God. Nebuchadnezzar, as we're looking at chapter 4, is a man without humility before God. Previously, he had been reproved through his dreams with no real genuine repentance. How quickly can you forget what you've already seen through an interpreted dream 
and the way the interpretation was given to you, there was only one person who could tell you the dream that you had when you told no one else about it and gave you the interpretation. And that one person worshipped only the one true living God. And yet you come out of that with no real genuine repentance before that God as being holy. As he's without humility before God, he had been reproved through his edicts with no repentance. Don't don't you think God was bringing reproof to Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar made this statue and told everybody to worship it? And when Daniel's three friends who were known to worship the one true living God, the God of Israel, when they were known to worship him, that he throws them into the fire when they won't bow down before his golden image that he made? And when they don't bow down, God miraculously saves them from the fire. How much more of a reproof do you need? There is mental assent to the Most High God and His signs and wonders, but there is no repentance. He elevates the three friends to prosperity, but he does not say, I have sinned against your God and I have sinned against you. I am undone. In one sense, in the life of Daniel, as you look at it carefully, it is amazing to watch these two different men and how they view the world and how they look at their lives and what they do in the context of their whole life. One man seeking to serve God, the one true living God, Because he knows apart from him he has no hope. And one man always kicking back against the one true living God. Always going back to his own power, his own kingdom, his own strength. It's one thing to have power over people and yet to serve them. It's another thing to have power where you think everyone serves you, even the one who created you. Well, I want to leave you with a few observations this morning. Number one, God grants inspiration through men to produce his word. God grants inspiration through men 
to produce his word. Notice here, we hear in verse 4 from Nebuchadnezzar. This word that we have before us is inspired and infallible. But Nebuchadnezzar himself as a person was not inspired and infallible. And yet God used him to bring about a portion of his word so that we could see what God was doing. That ought to be amazing in and of itself and to tell us plainly the very power of the one true living God. That even a man so powerful as Nebuchadnezzar could be used for the glory of God in such a way that a portion of God's word, his inspired word, was produced and brought about through that man. We have to remember that the men who speak and pen the truth of the Scripture are not inspired. It's the Word itself that is inspired. Number two, God calls men to trust His Word. I want to talk a little bit about His Word. Well, what do we do with it? It's His inspired, infallible Word. Well, God calls men to trust His Word. One pastor, a theologian, wrote, This is a telling feature of the natural man, and many Christians too. They will try everything before consulting God's word. Nebuchadnezzar is a man that he's going to roll over in the bed. He's going to be unsettled till he's unsettled trying to figure out what these dreams and these visions mean. He's just all kinds of upset. And at this point, he shouldn't even have called the other magicians in. What's he even doing in verse 7, whether he calls them in or they come in before him? But I'm telling you, they weren't going to come before him unless Nebuchadnezzar called them. That's just how it worked. When you see in verse 7, the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in and I related the dream to them, they didn't come in because they just had a whim. Or they just thought, well, I'm going to go see the king today. You went in before the king when you were called. What in the world is Nebuchadnezzar doing even calling them in? There's even some recognition of this in verse 8 as it begins, but finally Daniel came in before me. Maybe he's closer. Maybe he's closer. But he was not a man who was trusting in God's word. And it tells us plainly, we're called to trust in God's word. How many of us have issues or concerns or difficulties in life and we will go to every other link to solve whatever thought or issue we have besides consulting the Word of God? And then when we consult the Word of God, we won't actually listen to it. We'll still go do what we want to do. And then we'll be upset when some pastor stands in front of us and tells us we need to listen to God's Word 
or we'll be upset when some friend comes and gives the Word of God to us, but we still don't want to do what it says. It makes no sense. It's one of the reasons I think Martin Lloyd-Jones spent so much time talking about the importance of recognizing the first and best counseling comes from the pulpit. If a pastor preaches the Word of God and the congregation will not hear it and will not heed it, you're probably not going to get much further when you're talking to them personally. This is supposed to be a time that the preaching of the Word comes to the people of God and there is a man who stands in the stead of Christ to give the Word of God to the people. And if the people of God won't listen then... How many personal conversations can you have? How many times have I read something in God's Word and known that I needed to deal with that and I would not deal with it? But I'd go to try to read something else. Or I'd try to find some other piece of information that might help me. But in reality, I really don't want help. I want somebody to tell me what my itching ears want to hear. You want to know one of the problems of the modern evangelical church today? The Word of God means nothing. The Word of God means nothing. In most of these churches, if you go and you preach the Word of God, for certain portions of preaching, you will be thrown out on your head. Won't even listen. Just be angry. That's not my God. Who does that sound like? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar! No, your, your God may not be like that, but the God of the Bible is. The one true living God. They don't consult the Word of God or think about the Word of God when the God, Word of God plainly says certain things are unholy and they are not to be left undealt with. Whether that's in private or whether that's in public. The adulterous person needs to be dealt with. If it's the Spirit of God who does it. The young person who wants to go and live their life their way and put themselves in temptations all along the way. They need to heed the Word of God and listen and stop playing around. These youth groups all over the nation are filled with a bunch of unconverted teenagers who do not care about the Word of God. And whose fault is that? It's pastors. It's church members. 
Scripture teaches homosexuality is sin. Does it mean that a person cannot be forgiven of that sin and cannot be redeemed from that sin? No, it doesn't mean that. But that does not mean people get to actively live in certain lifestyles and it not be dealt with. That's just plainly going away from the Word of God. People can have multiple genders. That's allowed in churches now. No, they're not churches. That's allowed in groups now that call themselves churches. It's going away from the Word of God. It's not trusting in His Word. And if a church heads that direction, where will the people head? We're seeing the mentality of Nebuchadnezzar lived out among us all over the place. Some great tragedy tragedy like 9-11 happens and everybody, oh, let's pray. Pray to who? Oh, oh, God help us. Which God? Are you going to bow to the real one? Are you going to humble yourself and say, oh, I'm undone? And this morning in this church, We need to bow and say, we're undone. I don't know this for a fact, but I'll bet there's some people in this room this morning that need to say, God, I'm undone. I'm not listening to your word. I'm not consulting your word. I'm just doing what I want to do all of the time, and I'm not genuinely repenting. I say to you today, repent and believe. There's hope, there's forgiveness, there's truth. But stop blindly going back to your sin like a dog returning to vomit. Trust His Word. There's a reason He says the things He does in His Word. Humble yourself as Nebuchadnezzar would not. The first question that we ought to ask when we have a problem is what principles from Scripture deal with this matter? We shouldn't go anywhere else. Scripture ought to be the very first place we go for absolutely everything. You say, well, it didn't teach teach me how to cook spaghetti, but it tells you you need food. But it doesn't need to tell you that, do you? Does it? Don't be silly. You know what I mean. You need the Word of God in every single part of your life. And if the church across this nation took the Word of God seriously, things would look different. But this place looks like Babylon because we act like Nebuchadnezzar. Thirdly, God commands mankind to bow before him. Have you bowed before him? Humbled yourself before him? As James 4.10 says. There will be a lot of churches that meet this week. 
And I wonder how many people that meet will actually be bowing and humbling themselves before God. Or will they just be saying, what can you give me today? Number four, God commands governments to serve and protect on behalf of him. God commands governments to serve and protect on behalf of him. The kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar was recognized as a great tree and a great tree of profit to the people. And all that it would serve and provide them in. Now, you may have had people that debated whether or not it was a great kingdom. But the way it's recognized here is that there was some fruit of the kingdom. When this tree is chopped down, it's not only the king that loses his kingdom. It's the people. And whatever benefits that kingdom provided, those are lost too. I used to always ask the question, you know, why doesn't the U.S. just go in and just assassinate a bunch of these crazy leaders across the world? There's like ten of them I could name. And I'd say, just assassinate them jokers and it's over. You know, over the years you read more books and you start to realize, well, there's some reasons sometimes they don't assassinate some of these people. Because they never know who might step in afterwards. Because it might be worse than the first. I think I agree with Calvin here. He says, speaking of these passages, a tree, because God appointed the existence of governments in the world for this purpose, to be like trees on whose fruits all men feed and under whose shadow they rest. However far they are removed from justice and moderation, whether they wish it or not, they are compelled to be like trees. Since it is better to live under a tyrant than without any government at all. Tyranny is better than anarchy. Doesn't mean that we don't need to stand at certain times and deal with certain issues. Calvin's just simply telling us, be careful for what you want. You may get it and it may not be what you think it will be. Fifthly and lastly, God requires believers to personally and reverently claim him. God requires believers to personally and reverently claim him. The one thing that God has made clear to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel is that God is knowable. God is knowable. And Daniel has made this clear not only through the interpretations, but through his life, there is a real serious understanding, and we'll see it in later chapters, of Daniel's true faith in God. Because he's knowable and he's real. You want to know the difference of thinking about whether you think God is knowable or not and whether he's real? is how many idols you're willing to construct to put between you and the real one living true God. And Nebuchadnezzar never seems to have a problem up to this point 
with making another idol. As believers, when we personally and reverently claim him as our God and that we are in his family, we're saying he's knowable. But we're also saying he is worthy. God is worthy. He alone is worthy of our reverence. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. worthy of our reverence that's why there ought to be elements of our worship that are reverent not everything in our worship needs to be a circus our lives should not be just a complete circus all of the time even if there are providences that God has brought our way and it seems like it's a circus There ought to be an element of real reverence that we have before the one true living God because he's worthy of it. Do you and I revere him? Is he the thing that we love the most? Not only is he worthy of our reverence, but he's worthy of our obedience. Obedience in society. If all the quote-unquote Christians across the United States actually took God's word seriously, I think this country would look different. And maybe I'm wrong and somebody wants to debate me on that, I'm willing to have the conversation. But out of all the people across this nation who claim to believe in the Christian God, if they really did believe in him, And they really had true faith, repentance and faith in him alone. I think this nation would look different. If we want to think about what is really ailing our society. What's ailing our society is unrighteousness. It's just pure unrighteousness. Even the decent acts we do are tainted with our own self-centeredness. Look at me. Look at what I did. Scott brought it up a few weeks ago. Give a little extra at Panda, whatever it is. I call it Panda House. That's what Sophie calls it. She loves it. Calls it Panda House. Going there, we had the same experience, Scott, just a week after you were there. That's where Sophie wanted to go for her birthday. Will you round up for children, something or another? Sure, whatever. Ding, 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 ding. And you're standing there going, oh, no. Why do they do all that? They want everybody to know. And that's what we do. We really want everybody to know, look at us, look at how good I am. What ails us is unrighteousness, and the only cure is righteousness. Calvin called it the medicine for not only the individual soul, but the soul of a society or culture. We need righteousness. One of the Puritans says, 
He does not counsel a psychic for the distemper of his head, but to break off a course of sin. You see here, he's not, Daniel's not trying to tell Nebuchadnezzar, hey, l- let me give you a, a little bit of psychic work here to kind of distemper what's going on in your head, and I want to help you settle down just a little, man. Cool it out. He just simply at the end says to him, you're unrighteous. You don't love righteousness and you don't love the righteousness of God. And really, that's the same for us. Because this is not only is he worthy of our obedience in society, but he's worthy of it in private when nobody else is looking. We personally claim the Lord when we seek to thoughtfully obey him in private and sincerely repent when we don't obey him. Repentance is a recognition that he is God and prevails over all of life and we are not God. Do you go before him in such repentance to recognize that you are not God? You know you want to be, don't you? I want to be. That remaining flesh in me. I want the control. I want the power. It's down there. Doesn't always come out in front of everybody. Sometimes it has. It's there, though. Will you admit it? And bow before Him and say, You alone are God. And will you praise Him as not only the only God, but will you praise Him and say, You are my God. And there is none like You. Will you praise Him And say, you sent your son to die for sinners like me. Will you then seek to take that real forgiveness and repentance and hope and faith and take it into the world that you live in? So that people will see the great grace of God worked out in the souls of men and women. I encourage us. Let's take him seriously at his word and nothing else. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you as our God, the one true living God, and ask your mercies upon us as we come to the table. May we come thoughtfully, confessing our sin in repentance and faith before you. 
for what you have done through sending your son. And may we glory in him alone. We ask that your spirit would work according to your word alone to deal with our souls. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.